let's go again. Um, where was oh yeah, you were just talking about um, your free solo analogy, um, Jim. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know how well that worked, but it, but it still kind of was it. Um, was it sort of how you know, sort of every step up the mountain, free solo is is essentially a, a movement of faith, and that sort of you know how all of existence unfolds. It's just this series of um, of decisions, which which could be disastrous or lead you one step further up the mountain. I think. Yeah, and this in the structure of the film as well seems to me to feel a little bit like the structure of the way I see Fear and Trembling, and that is that we're there gazing upon Abraham. And one of the things about gazing upon Abraham is that we know the end of the story. And and so at any given moment in a story, your identity, your person you know, what what it is to be that individual is determined by the whole narrative. I mean, talk about the Vanderplay idea of the of the you know kind of narrative driving everything. We are we're living in a story verse. Well, you know, as we go into as we think about Abraham, the reason Abraham appears to us in the way that Abraham does is that we know the whole arc of the story, and so there we we look upon that and and we only have the ability to see Abraham as the figure that plays this entire narrative out. Um, and then we re therefore realize that there's no real way into, let's say, the consciousness of Abraham, because Abraham's experience is one in which he doesn't know the end of the story. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so when we're looking upon Abraham, we can't, we can't undo the fact that what we're seeing is the, the entire narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so therefore, you know, Abraham's faith is opaque to us or whatever. And that's, that's the structure that I've taken out of fear and trembling. But then what you realize is that's, such no, a good that's point. not really the point. The point is that you are standing in relation to yourself in exactly the same way in which Abraham is standing in relation to his his journey to the mountain that is to say you don't know your own you, your narrative is not complete and therefore your identity is undefined because how you what you are is going to be determined by how this narrative plays itself out and you don't know what that's going to be so you have to walk in that you are not it's not you have to you are in that same posture so the same thing is true in that in the in the film. You're looking along, you know, I, I pick out this moment where they have this great gorgeous shot of Holland looking up, Honnell, sorry, looking up at the at the rock, you know, and, and you're just seeing this moment where he's gonna Try. climb the rock. And yet we know what happens. By definition, the film is not gonna happen. There is no film if he doesn't make it to the top. <laughs> you know, and yet so that moment of him, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He could be a, a, he could be the guy who falls off and dies, or he could, or he could bail out again and go home, and and then the film doesn't happen. So, you know, so we've got that same dynamic, and yet the, imp the I what I want to say is that our own experience actually has that same depth of of gravitas because we don't know the way our narrative plays out, and if our decision is to sit back and you know, play video games because we're 
afraid of going out, well, that's a very impactful decision. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that, that, I don't know, if, is that something that I'm making up out of, out of that narrative? I, it's such a good point. I mean, yeah. I think one, you know, you just mentioned how the film, sort of, you know what, how it's going to end, but at the same time, the only way to enjoy the film is to suspend judgment about the ending. You sort of have to live in, in the moment and sort of feel the tension. And that's right. the, the beauty of, of a film like this is you, you sort of, you know, it's it sort of, you know, think about it. If there was a film of Abraham going up the mountain with Isaac, you were sort of in this moment with Abraham in the, you're feeling the tension and, and that's exactly the, the movement of existence. And, there's also a really good um, theological point to be made here where I think so often, you know, I was just struck by, by your point that we can't read the story of Abraham because we already know the ending. And I think that goes for how, how, how so many Christians have this sort of superficial experience of faith where there's no uncertainty in their faith because they already know the ending in a sense. So I, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example, but it, but it's, it's just so, it's just so common where everything is sort of nailed down and everything has ended. And there's never this lived tension that makes that, that, that makes true faith possible. You know, well, it's right in the, uh, it's right in the title of the book. Like, um, sorry to interrupt, but like, Calvinism, in Calvinism, and I don't know how it works in, in your your um, your Tradition. theology of your background, yeah. but basically oh. the the one problem that people fall into is um, taking their their own salvation for granted. Yeah. So uh, the doctrine of election. Now, there's nothing wrong with the doctrine of election at the face of it. There's there's something wrong with with how people respond to it. Right, because just like you're saying, they think the story's over, but the yeah. story's not over. The story, they're living the story. It can't be over, right? And and that's why Kierkegaard used that title for his book: "Work Out Your or Work Out Your Salvation with Fear and Trembling." Right? It's not a done deal. Like all the Christians living with him in, um, I always forget the name of the city, uh, in Denmark, where Copenhagen, um, they're all operating under the under that same assumption right they're christians you know they have nothing to worry about this life or the next um and he's like well actually you do you're right in the middle of the story you don't actually know you can't know in you know in the full sense of the term how it ends right? and that's uh, that's um that's also part of his um attack upon christendom right where he said he has this line somewhere where he says um the church triumphant um has sort of seized with impatience, what belongs to the end. Mm -hmm. And he, he sort of can really, there's a really interesting political point that he's making there where, you know, established Christendom sort of sees itself as, um, you know, the end. It has arrived. It is, um, it's unquestionable. Yeah. yeah. And Kierkegaard, um, 
somehow manages to occupy this space where he can question the established order. And I think that's just a profound stance that Kierkegaard makes possible. He makes it possible to, to question the established order because of his, because of exactly the stance we're describing here, where he realizes he has not arrived. Um, the story hasn't reached an end and you're just a human being who's struggling his way through existence. And every single one of us and the institutions we create are the same way. And so, so I think Kierkegaard makes it possible to speak the truth, right? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I, I'd be interested to hear you guys explore that more because I'm having a hard time articulating this. But well, And yeah. for me, it's the... It's not only that, it's that you face the, the choice no matter what, of what you're, how you're going to proceed, and that no matter what you go, no matter what choice that is, <laughs> you're risking everything. No matter what choice that is, you can, it doesn't matter, you're risking everything. So you need to, so fear and trembling is, is an appropriate um, mood or stance on that, but, it, but in, in another sense, of course, it's freeing making you realize that you can take choices to some degree that seem risky because choosing not to do it is risky as well. It has the same impact. You're, you're committing everything. You know, you're never going to be 24 again. Okay. So, um, uh, I don't know that that's, this is, this is this essence of Kierkegaard for me that injects everything with meaning. It makes everything important. And that, that's the thing that I love about him and always will kind of, I'll give that to him or I'll say that that's what Kierkegaard gave me is this sense that, that you know, nothing's mm-hmm. trivial, nothing's ordinary. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. That is. Um, <laughs> I would say also that, um, so people don't really know where to put Kierkegaard. They say, you know, he's a, is he a theologian? Is he a philosopher? Is he what is he? Right, he's a philosopher. Right? Literary, he's a literary figure. I think he's a philosopher because yeah. he asks. He he's all he's big into asking questions as philosophers do for a living. So not, not always a great living, um, but he asks again. You know, after you know, people have assumed for years that this question had been answered, but he asks again, "What is faith?" Right, he wants to know what faith is, so he writes. You know, how many books did you write about faith? I'm not sure, but lots. And um, he, people, people, people don't ask the question because they, they know what faith is. Faith is, faith is what Christians have and they're Christians. So faith is what they have. They have faith, right? Do you have, like, what is your faith? People say or whatever, right? Oh, my faith is Christianity. But he's like, no, no, no. What is faith? Like, what is it? <laughs> what is faith? So I think that that's, that's what he, that's the job that he's taken upon himself. He, he's, he's there to ask questions that people have assumed the answers to for um, however long. So, yeah, I think that, that asking questions also, that also fits into, into what we're, what we're describing here about this moment to moment moving up the mountain. And I think, I think that's, goodness that i think you just you just captured something so essential there jim with with this 
that this analogy of um, of first solo because it just it, it, as I'm thinking about it, just so many themes from Kierkegaard could be sort of could sort of flow from this single fount. Um, when I think of um, of the central message of you know his book, concluding on scientific postscript, where he sort of takes on you know objective knowledge and 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 sort of says you know you, you can't there's always you have to you have to um take subjectivity into account um and that that sort of fits into the same scheme here where where essentially Kierkegaard is saying you know we never know the end of the story we never um we never know how the abraham story is is going to end we can only walk with him up the mountain and i think he's saying the same thing about objective knowledge you can't sort of get this story perspective this 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 view from above you sort of have to embed yourself in the world and move forward one decision at a time and that's i think part of his his critique of of objective knowing yeah that's a, that's a that's one of the big things I, I picked up from Kierkegaard is his, um, his whole perspective on truth. Very, very, very helpful to me. His pushback of uh, pushback on Hegel and the systematizing, totalizing system of thinking. You know, as oh, yeah. not you know not going to undo the fact that you're still just confronting it as an individual. Um, and there's that doesn't. The fact that you have some organized architect, you know, architectonic thing that, that supposedly nails it all down and, and uh, makes you recognize that you understand history and, and everybody's place in it, you know, that doesn't penetrate um, very deeply when, when you, you know, when you go through this in this subjectivized way that Kierkegaard does. Yeah. Um, hmm, hmm, yeah. If you have anything to add, Robert, um, I I could take this in 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 some different directions here. Um, um, I would say I'll, I'm trying to think about that analogy, and it it does. I think there's probably more you can get out of it than just um, you don't know you don't know the end of the story. You don't know if you're going to make it to the top of the mountain. Um, uh, I don't know. So the, you can't know, and and you know, someone will say like, the climber. Um, what were you thinking about, or whatever, right? And he was probably thinking about the summit. If he was thinking about anything, um, but it, you know, if he was really honest, he would say, "I wasn't thinking. I was just, I was just doing." Right? You just when, when you're in situations if you don't just do you probably die so um and i think that that's one of the things that is happening well, that's one of the conclusions that trigger comes to in in trembling um that's what like what does faith look like like what is faith well you can't actually say what faith is you just have to do it right faith is is an, is an act faith is a state of being it's not really a um definable thing it's, it's hardly even a, a proper concept because, you know, you can manipulate concepts like Hegel does, right? But faith is this thing that um, 
that you have to just do and uh and it can't even talk about it right so sorry i'll just finish abraham can't say to his servant oh yeah i'm gonna go up the mountain and sacrifice isaac he can't say to his wife oh yeah i'm just gonna go up to this mountain and sacrifice isaac god doesn't even tell him that he's going to the mountain he just says you know head off in this direction and then he tells him which mountain it is you know but Mm -hmm. he's just he's operating completely I would say in the dark, but it's not really in the dark because he's just doing what God is telling him to do, right? And uh, yeah, that's like like silence is a big theme, and silence in in Kirkwood in general, and silence connects directly to um, faith because silence is a thing that separates faith from infinite resignation as well. Silence, yeah, silence, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and, the, and this is why this is why the, the, the biblical text is so fascinating too, in this sense, because. How, how do you construct it that way? You know, that it's amazing that it actually ended up the way it did in the, in the, mm-hmm. in the actual text where there's this, this, just what you were referencing, this, this three days walk and I'll tell you where you're going then, you know, it, what is, that's just kind of like a weird um, element that then becomes so critical in the way it, the way it, the impact that it has. And yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's just a very interesting thing to me. And I wonder how, you know, I mean, obviously the Abrahamic faith is, is the central, this is one of the central stories of the whole story. Certainly the three branch tradition, the Islamic Christian and Judea and, and Jewish tradition. Yeah. And it's significant that he, he picks that story. Like I was, I was mentioning, like, you know, he asked, he asked the question that no one has even considered for it years and years right and he does it he asks it through uh, a, a story that nobody knows how to talk about right because if you know you know as he says in fear and trembling he says you know if, if someone would happen to take you know if someone happened to be suffering from uh um insomnia in the <laughs> during a sermon and uh take the story seriously they might go off and sacrifice, you know, attempt to murder their own son. Right. And then, and then they would tell the priest, they'd be like, you know, I, I'm just doing what the Bible, you know, what the, what the what right. pastor told me to do. And the pastor would have to be like, that's insane. Like, you are a murderer. Right. You're done. Right? So no one wants to talk about it because it's, it's a crazy and even story. When they do, and even when they do talk about it, they don't talk about it. Often they don't and talk it, about that's it. The, exactly. That's the yeah. first opening section of Fear and Trembling is that they, it doesn't even matter. You can say whatever you want about it. And it's not yeah. going to be, it's not going to touch at the essence of this because you can't, yeah. you can't say it out loud. You can't talk about that because yeah. it turns into all these scenarios that he then lays out mm-hmm. and that you were just laying out. So that's, it's just a, it's just a completely fascinating thing. And, and yeah. that Kierkegaard notices that and picks up, not picks on that, but just, it's like a sore spot. Yeah. <laughs> that people, gets, that, people that are unfamiliar with the, with, um, Christianity as a whole, they man, they just they just don't know how to talk about it. So we read all these all these journal articles and stuff for um, during during our studies of um, of fear and trembling last year, and a lot of these people they they just these they're doctorates in philosophy and they just have no clue what's going on. They, they, <laughs> they make it about some some one thing and they you know they milk it they try to milk that concept and you're like you're. I'm like, I, you guys are completely on the wrong track. The best, the best is when they, when they, um, they have some knowledge of, um, of St. Paul and then they can get somewhere because then, you know, they, they start talking about, um, 
you know, things like sin, because sin ties directly, you know, obviously sin ties directly into the relationship um, of the whole reason for all these different, uh, you know, what would you call them, archetypes or something of uh, infinite resignation and, and the night of faith and, and that the, um, the aesthetic and whatever else, right? The ethical, yeah. The ethical, that, that as well, yeah. And, and but what, if they don't have any knowledge of that or they don't mention any of the biblical stuff, like they're lost. They have no clue what's going on. Yet they try anyways. And it's like, <laughs> what, a waste, what a waste of time. This is what I was starting with, with uh, <laughs> me coming from this secularized background, this kind of the Western tradition from a secular kind of uh, liberal, liberal uh, college perspective. Mm-hmm. They don't exclude him because he's not quite a theologian. He's, he's yeah. got this place where they have to kind of include him in there, but they have no way to grapple with it because there's no depth of understanding of the, of the Christian um, mm-hmm. history that has brought them to that very spot. And uh, it shows you the ahistorical nature of our, our era. We, you know, yeah. it's, that, that I could, this is going to sound goofy, but that I could study, um, that I could study Paradise Lost in college and no one in the room is talking about the bible Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean how is that how does that make any sense at all yeah i'm actually going to mention paradise lost as well you know it's one of that's the way it was for me that's the that was the experience of studying that in college it's like yeah paradise lost is a really funny one because um i took a bunch of uh english classes too but my, my minor was in english and so we did Paradise Lost at a certain point, and um, the funniest thing is a lot of a lot of these critics, critics, they take literary critics, they take the side of Satan in Paradise Lost. Absolutely. And the the the, the, the funny bit is that it, that's what Milton, that's the intention. Satan is supposed to seduce you. He's supposed to convince you that he is <laughs> he's the one who's been hurt, right? That's like you guys, man. Like it's right in there. Like you missed it. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's, it's something else. The, the one... I think I mean, what, what it, goes, really helps... it runs through all of re- reading English uh, literature. So, for mm-hmm. example, another one that's, a, that's another good example is Moby Dick, which, you know, it's just ridiculous to try to read these things without taking seriously the biblical text. Yep. And, and my, you know, again, this is, night, this is many years ago, and hopefully maybe things have changed, but... In order, to, in order to teach English literature to a college student, the first class that you should take is to study the Bible. Yep. <laughs> because it, it only is in the middle of the 20th century that it stops being the central idea yep. that's being talked about all the time. You know, <laughs> you know. For all the illusions and stuff that people just, they yeah. just miss them because, because they're not, they, don't, they don't have any background in the Bible. I, I imagined I got, I, you know, a lot of my grades were very much helped by the, by just simply understanding illusions that, that most <laughs> students were missing. I'm not, I'm not even joking. Like these, the, most of my, most of the students that I went to school with, they just wouldn't understand the illusion. And I would say it and people would, you know, at first they wouldn't say it because I assumed everyone would understand without having to be told. But then I was like, oh, I got this, you know, this free marks thing. I could just say the illusion and i'll get free marks so that's pretty, that's pretty neat well yeah. it's also you so know, nietzsche, nietzsche is another example i mean how are you going to understand nietzsche 
if you don't understand the depth of the meaningfulness of what it was that he was saying, because, you know, yeah, so he's, so he's, he's saying we're throwing out the, you know, the Christian tradition, but if you've already decided that that was a, a, a thin, meaningless thing in the first place, then you don't, you're not getting what Nietzsche was, was about. He, it was very meaningful to him that this was being lost. I don't, I don't know. He wanted to overcome it. He wanted to move beyond it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say he was, he was doing something else, but it was very important. And, um, and I don't think there's any way of getting that unless you can give Grant some meaningfulness to it. And yeah. You can just repeat that for certainly 19th century literature. Almost everything um, has yeah, that. As so a, interesting. Yeah. Wow. And he's yeah. trying to re replace the, uh, He's trying to replace the Bible with his own. Like, thus yeah. speaks Zarathustra. That's an attempt at a religious text. Exactly. So he. Do you he think he succeeded? Text. So what's that? Think he succeeded? I mean, does um, does Nietzsche sort of introduce a new current of thought that's um, not founded in the Bible, or is that or is that not possible because of the formation he has? I mean. In a sense, to um, to to make yourself antithetical to the to to Christianity and to sort of try to it's sort of to be a Christian. It's sort of a Christian stance at the same time. It's like um, I, I would guess that Christianity has within itself its own antithesis. So even to produce. An antithesis is to to sort of fall within the canon, essentially, right? You have this this figure of Satan within Christianity. So, I don't know. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I actually think that. Uh, well, he didn't replace it. I mean, he did the same thing that's been attempted many times. Um, you know, the first time by Satan, perhaps. Uh, he, he, I think he is a kind of a, at some points in his writing, he, he, he appears as a kind of a, um, demonic figure. I mean that in a very practical sense, like he is, um, he is raging against all sorts of things and he's very, he's very insular. Like he, he is not, he's quite self-critical as well, but he's trying desperately to stand, um, on its on his own and to start a new thing to start a new religion right and i think that is um that actually fits fairly well into Kierkegaard's conception of the of the demonic and it certainly fits well into you know just a sort of general uh christian sense of the demonic as well right uh, or the satanic or however you want to put it what do you I think is um archetypally speaking what do you think um maybe that's a question for both but also for you, Jim, like what, what do you think Satan in its essence represents? If that's a question you can answer, that's it. Um, I think, I, I think I, for me, Satan sort of represents the, the absolutizing quest for power where you're sort of trying to, um, to create a system that shakes its fist at God and and claims to be absolute and i think in that way it's it's antithetical to you know kierkegaard when he speaks of faith because what faith always does is it 
it, Kierkegaard's faith is one of radical humility. It, it, it always stands in relationship to the infinite and, and moves like Abraham from the place of certainty to the place of uncertainty. And so it's, it's, always, um, it's always breaking down it's always breaking down these um, these satanic towers that reach the heavens, and and I think that's um, in that sense it's also subversive because you know I, I wonder if if that's oh boy you know curtain guards attack on Christendom is he's sort of almost saying Christendom has become this satanic. Um, thing where it where it has turned itself into god and Kierkegaard, through his writings is subverting that i don't know just just throwing these ideas out what do you can you guys do anything with that <laughs> personal with that one but um yeah i think um yeah, starting where we were before, I don't know if this is going to connect to what you're saying or not, but I'll go with it anyway. Um, overused term in the last few minutes here, faith. Faith is at the center of the way I think about experience. I think that, that, that faith is a precondition for the possibility of, of, going, of be, you know, being, and therefore I see it as, as pre-existing my own you know, kind of um, decision-making. And so the only real question is, will I deny that? Will I, you know, will I, will I, you know, will I face the uncertainty of the future and, and to some degree the certainty of the future in terms of what will ultimately happen? Will I, will I, um, will I deny my already, the, the, the already existing fact that I do value the real uh, my, my experience. And, 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 and in a certain way, that's the, what I define as, as faith. Um, um, and, and then that elaborates itself as Christian faith for me. And I don't know if that made any sense at all, but what Kierkegaard, you know, here, here's, here's a, here's, here's what would have been the faithful move for Kierkegaard. And that would have been to see all that he saw about the Christian church as it stood in his world recognize its extreme flawed status and it's um and it's uh, all the things that we've been talking about have full awareness of that and then join the church and, and, and <laughs> as a church you know yeah. and realize that's what he's doing that's that would take faith right that faith because he sees you see it not now as corruption you don't you don't see the, the church as corruption. You see it as weakness. You see it you see it as something to pity, and 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 then you realize you're in the same spot. This is this revert. This is the flipping thing that Kierkegaard always does to me. He's sitting there railing against these people, but what is he doing? He, you know, in a certain sense, he's just as flawed in his deconstruction of the of Christendom wow. days. As Christendom is itself, I, I'm I'm exaggerating. I'm, I'm that's a little bit of probably. I mean, that's so that's so salient for how so many of us experience church. Is like right. 
this is such a this is such a poor excuse for a Christian community, then you realize you're a part of the problem. <laughs> exactly how I try to put in humility, you use the word in humility, I walk into church and I realize, you know, some of these people who are sitting in the pews with me, they believe some really things that I do not buy. <laughs> but how how much better am I? I mean, there I am, judging. There I am, being you know going right against what I know is right in terms of my my duty to love and and commune and and so anyway. Profound point there, uh, Robert. Have you can you add it? Something similar to uh, you know uh, Kierkegaard and how he's. Is actually his writing becomes to him the possibility of the demonic as well right so uh so he, he questions whether he should be doing it and of course again as you mentioned he, he says you know he says like if, I, if he had faith he would have married married the girl so but the demonic i think we can um we can say that it it you know it basically means something like you said shaking your fist at god but it's a, it's a uh taking yourself as um, quite, you know, quite, um, what is it? Taking yourself as as the um, absolute. Oh yeah, yeah. So God is the absolute with a capital A in Kierkegaard, um, meaning that it's basically one and the same thing. God is absolute. And- um, You just you realize that, how- Yeah, the demonic Sorry. would be taking yourself as the absolute, right? That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, most, I guess, just that's a really simple way of putting it. But yeah, I, I mean, I think this this point right here. This is this is gone. This has evolved into a very good uh, um, expression for me of these points that I was starting off with. This this idea that Kierkegaard has this ability to kind of generate this kind of deep sense of gravitas or importance, and then this last point of 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 you know, this this committing to the ordinary as, as, um, uh, extra, yeah. uh, for me that I, that I'll, I'll carry that out of Kierkegaard, even though, and, and maybe Robert, you're helping me realize that is kind of in there. And in, yep. in, in I have in there. kind of made that up. <laughs> yeah. Kierkegaard, yeah, he has that effect. He just, um, leaves so many things with you, but, but you could never really, point your finger at you know here Kierkegaard has this sentence which perfectly encapsulates mm -hmm. it's it's so much more of a stance that you that you get from him um, Robert and said it another piece of literature or you know I've read a lot of stuff I used to think that Shakespeare maybe in the form of Hamlet did this for me nothing has had well there's you know the Bible certain elements of the Bible other things there's some other things that stand in, in the same relationship but there's not very many and Kierkegaard still, you know, still maintains over many, many years for me. So. Yeah, yeah. I've got, yeah, he, he, yeah, he's the type of guy you, you want to have around, poking around in your axioms for, for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, carry it around in your, in your hip pocket, carry the book around in your hip pocket. My son wrote a wrote a song in his second in his next album. It's called "Afraid and Trembling," and it's it's I, w I was trying to get him to give me the lyrics so I could share it on this. I'll, I'll eventually get that to you. It's not yet 
on Spotify or whatever, but he, 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 he plays out uh, the Abraham story in this. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah it's cool. kind of an alt rock thing. And I actually, I, I actually loved the first song he put out. What was it called? Um, I have it on my Spotify playlist. You recommended Black it in your, uh, again? Black Friday, I, I put yeah, that. Yeah, the Black Friday one. I, I love that song. Go, uh, go, go into it again because there's a video now. He's got a video of, of Black Friday or, or so. Okay, okay. yeah. In all these, these Christian references, he's got, a, he's got a song called Eucharistia. That's on the, on the, um, the new on the album. Okay, okay. So up, he's got like this good poetic version of Christianity. And then, um, and then on the new album, he's got this one, Afraid and Trembling. So. I'm looking forward to watching that. Great. I can make a book recommendation to end it off if you want. Oh, great. Do it. Great, Robert. See this book? This is uh, The Lily of the Field and the Bird of the Air. Uh, yeah. it's, so it's his godly discourses, which means it's basically ser little sermons, but they all, they're all connected. And you just said something about making the, making the banal profound again, making everyday life profound, um, which is done, of course, you know, in the attitude of faith. This is what that, that's what this book is about. It's, um, it's you know, as the, as the title suggests, it's about making very common things um, looking at them in their simplicity and trying to imitate that in order to get to a position where you too can um, can live life simply, but simply in a not like a hippie way, more like a psychologically um, straightforward way. Which is show that again. What's different. the name of that book? It's called "The Lily of the Field and the, and the Bird of the Air." Yeah, Three godly discourses. Yeah, he's riffing on the Sermon on the Mount there, right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. I picked up um, his The Present Age uh, recently. I haven't just got too much other stuff on the go, so I haven't had a chance to read that. Any have any of you dipped into that? Or? I read a little bit of it once, but kind of I don't think I've heard commentaries about that a lot, but I have not read that one myself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think it's sort of that he's doing some kind of a cultural analysis in that one. So people say it's it, it it's very relevant to to today. So maybe I'll. Hey, well, I think maybe we did a little better this time of uh, kind of coming to some some consensus ideas that we uh, we. Um, oh yeah, that was. Yeah. I think I was good. I think I was good. I appreciate you guys putting it together. Oh yeah, let's, we could do it. Um, could we do it next week again? I have a a friend called Jared who's a who's a Kierkegaard fan, a really really interesting guy. I should I should. Yeah, I, I'll give it a try. I'm off on the weekend, so if it was a similar time, I could probably do it. Maybe I can get Kevin to my son to join us. Okay, yeah, that would be that would be great. We'd have to have a couple hours with all of those interesting guys in there. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. Anyway, yeah, I can send out an email. I'll I'll see what I can do. But I'm off on the weekend, so that's good. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Hey, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks see for you. the convo. See you. Yeah. Yep. See ya. Bye.